Welcome to the Haber Show. This week, we're going to go deep on Michael Jordan again. Last week, it was Chris Mullen, his teammate on the 92 Dream Team. This time, we're going to go down memory lane with my man, J.A. Adande. He's the director of sports journalism at Northwestern University. You know him from ESPN as the writer and a regular panelist on Around the Horn. He covered MJ for the Chicago Sun-Times and later for the Washington Post. He covered Kobe and Shaq at the LA Times and, of course, LeBron later at ESPN And on this pod, we're going to discuss the Last Dance documentary series, go behind the scenes about covering MJ and the Bulls. We'll talk Pippen, why he's the greatest number two ever, according to J.A. And J.A. will also reveal the one time Kobe Bryant ever compared himself to MJ and why Michael was so extraordinarily affected by Kobe's passing. We'll get into all that and the bad boy Pistons and more. So without further ado, J.A. Adande. Jay Adande, I miss you, man. I haven't seen you in a while, but I did get to see you on the first episode of The Last Dance. <laughs> I haven't seen you since. Where you been? I know. I know. Like I say, I, I was in the starting lineup, and then I come out. It's kind of like, remember how the Warriors used Andrew Bogut for a while? Like, he'd start, and then he'd come out of the game. They might go death lineup for a while, and then he might start <laughs> the second half. So, yeah, I wasn't in episodes three and four. I think I show up, like, once in episodes five and six, I, I just make a quick transition to set up the Eastern Conference Finals in 93. But I'm in episode eight a lot. I basically narrate the 96 NBA Finals. So oh. eight happens to be my favorite. But I think seven <laughs> is the best episode. Seven is where you really get into the, the deep, dark recesses of Jordan's mind and his mentality. So I think that's the best episode of the eight that I've seen. I haven't seen nine and ten, but I saw the first eight episodes. and. I was very happy with my screen time in, in eight. <laughs> well, you, you did have a hot take in the, uh, in the appearance that I wrote down, the, uh, the Scottie Pippen as the greatest number two ever. I want to talk about that because um, I think you laid out a great piece at ESPN arguing this point. But I want to kind of just rewind a little bit. When did you find out about that, that this was greenlit and that you were going to be a part of it? I found out it was happening at the same time as everyone else when they dropped that commercial during the 2018 finals, I think. It was that <laughs> long ago. <laughs> they said, coming in June of 2020. That I, I think that's when they first announced it. I didn't have any idea that it was coming before that. So I saw it along with everyone else, that first super teaser that they dropped. And I just thought, oh, my God. <laughs> and then... So you had, no, you had known about made, the film crew and the, and the behind-the-scenes footage that was just kind of collecting dust? Maybe vaguely. I, I really – I can't say prior to that announcement during the 2018 finals that I, I had much knowledge about this. Mm. Uh, that I just wasn't in my circle. And then I got invited. They did like a, a kind of a teaser episode in 2019 at the All-Star Weekend in Charlotte, your hometown. Mm-hmm. They – they, they did a, and I found out later that they just kind of threw it together. It wasn't, it really didn't look like what episode one looked like here, but that was just something just to get people excited, generate a little buzz. And um, so I saw some clips and I thought, okay, this is going to be amazing. So that was my first real insight into what this was going to look like and what type of stuff they had on their hands. They, they showed the, the trip to France and my favorite clip from that was the, uh, the guy asking him for the autograph after he puts the microphone on him. 
Oh, uh, like, said, okay. Well, can someone track that guy down? I, I want to hear. <laughs> I know people are harping on uh, Tony Kukoc early on, but man, that guy is getting ripped to shreds. He should. He should. He broke all protocol. Like, unless they do it totally different in France than they do it here. But no, if you're, if you have that job, if you're the microphone guy, you're not supposed to be asking for an autograph. So, and, I, and but I the, saw that and I thought, okay, this is going to be really good. And you see the sit down interviews with Jordan. They'd already sat down with him once at that point. And I just thought, okay, this, this is going to be great. And um, then it was sometime after that, that they said, hey, we're going to be in Chicago. We'd love to talk to you for the documentary. And I said, I wasn't around for 97, 98. So I was there in 92 a little bit. I was really, I was there for the whole playoff run in 93. I covered the team as a beat writer in 94. That was all the Chicago Sun-Times. And I went to the Washington Post and I did the 96 playoffs and the 97 playoffs with the Bulls. And I, would, I did a lot of stories, especially the 95, 96 Bulls, who this, the traveling circus and the, uh, the pursuit of the 70 wins, all that stuff. So I was kind of an unofficial Bulls beat writer that 95, 96 season. And then I was with them in the finals in 97. And then I didn't do 97, 98. So I said, I wasn't there that season. Sure, you want to talk to me? And they said, well, we're also doing the whole build up and the backstory and how it became so contentious. So we'd love to hear your perspective. And, you know, there are plenty of other people that were around that did it. And I think I wind up, I kind of wind up serving as the narrator in some points because they don't have a narrator. They made the decision to go without the narrator. So they told me that, you know, we need the writers, the observers to help explain what was happening and to set the stage. And I think, you know, you saw in episodes three and four how, for example, Mike Wilbon and David Aldridge and Andrea Kramer did such a great job of helping you understand what those Bulls Pistons series were really about. Yeah, so put me in your shoes. How old were you when you started talking to Michael Jordan? And where were you? You were in Chicago, obviously. I was in Chicago. I come out to Chicago as a freshman in 1988 at Northwestern. And I start to be around Michael in my first time, I think, was media day 91 training camp. And I had spent the summer as an intern at the Washington Post. And then they told me, hey, when you get back there, if there's some big stories, you want to get on it, let us know. You can freelance for it. So I kind of went out on my own to media day. I forget how I was able to get in. It was, it was a lot easier <laughs> then before the Berto Center. This is when they still practice at the health club at the Deerfield Multiplex. So maybe, you know, Joe Fitness Guy could have gotten in for all I know. And, but that was a big story because they're defending champions. Jordan had blown off. Saturday Night Live. He, he didn't go, or actually, he went to Saturday Night Live. He didn't go to the White House with the team. So that was a big story. Why didn't you go to the White House? He said he was spending time with his family. It turned out he was golfing with his buddies and, and losing money while he was gambling with his buddies down in North Carolina. So that was a controversy. It was some question if he was even going to show up for the first day of training camp. And they send word that he's going to be there later. And they told all the media, hey, you stand over here at this end of the gym. And like every time the door would open, I was kind of like, is that Michael? Is that Michael? <laughs> and then finally he comes in. And I'll never forget, he walks up. I got my pen out and notepad and I got my, my micro cassette recorder ready. And he walks by and I feel my pen move a little bit. And I look down on his shirt and I had gotten some ink on his shirt. He brushed against my pen as he walked by me. So the first thing I did to Michael Jordan was to get ink on his shirt. No. We got off, we got off to a great start, right? And that was the beginning of it, you know, and I, I, I did some playoff games in, in 92 for the Washington Post. 
And then I was with him the whole time. But the other cool thing was just being in Chicago, you could have access. Even before I was covering the team, for example, the Final Four that year, and I was covering college football and basketball, and the Final Four was in New Orleans. That wound up being the Chris Weber timeout game. Mm. And beforehand, I, I did a story that two previous Final Fours had both had dramatic shots. Jordan shot in 82, and then Keith Smart shot against Syracuse in 87 to win it for Indiana. And so I just wanted to do a story on revisiting that shot in that moment with Michael Jordan. So you just go up to Bulls practice, or it would have to be a shoot-around that time, go up to the practice facility, and you catch Michael Jordan. I was actually able to get him alone. He was hurt. I remember he was in a bad mood. He had an ankle injury or something, so he kind of he's dragging himself into the locker room and saying, hey, Michael, can you talk about the shot in New Orleans? So at least it was a good memory, so he didn't mind talking about that. And then at the end, I said, you know, and he said that really helped propel him. That, and they, they get into that in a documentary about how that gave him confidence and that was yeah, the mic to Michael. on a big stage. Yep. Yeah, all that stuff. And then I asked him at the end, I said, you ever wonder what would have happened if I would have missed a shot? If you would have missed a shot? And he says, nah, I don't even want to think about it. Like he, he just perished the thought. You know, I might not be here today. I might not have the confidence. My career might not have turned out. I can't, I can't even allow myself to think about that now. <laughs> but, um, but again, it was cool when you're in Chicago, not that I had many occasions, but if, if I had the thought, you know what, I'd like to talk to Michael Jordan for this story. You could go to Bulls practice and talk to Michael Jordan. And he was less, a little bit less accessible than he'd been even a couple of years ago prior to the first championship. But he still talked. And I, I, I maintain no one has done as much media with that level of fame as Michael Jordan. So, uh, you know, a super movie star, whatever, Tom Cruise, they only talk when they want to, right? When they've got something to promote, yeah. they'll do the rounds of the talk shows, they'll do the press junkets, and then that's it. They can disappear and you don't have, they don't have to deal with the media again. Michael Jordan had to deal with the media upwards of 100 times a year, right? And so that's why I don't really begrudge his silence once he retired. He really was good to us and accommodating to us, less so as it went on, as he got more, you know, just tired of it and, and it became a little more adversarial with the media. But the amount of access that he gave us, the amount of our questions that he answered, and you get a sense of that in this documentary, right? They'll, they'll sometimes they'll do those montages or you just yep. see him coming out to deal with the media, this throng of media. Think about how many times he had to deal with that amount of people surrounding him and asking questions. I wouldn't talk to us either after all that. Yeah, and you, th you think about like people who go into media afterwards, like Charles Barkley, he wasn't facing that kind of media presence at all. You know, like he, he, was, he was a star, a global star, 92 Dream Team. I think he, did he lead the 92 Dream Team in scoring? I think Close. so. Yeah. yeah, so like he was a, he was a global superstar, but I yeah, don't think he's kind nearly of in the same too. stratosphere as Michael Jordan. And so while Michael Jordan's exhausted about being in front of the mic all the time, I think, you know, Charles of the world are like, hey, this is my time to shine. And he thrived on it. And I think it was never in, in starker contrast than the 93 finals when they're playing against each other, Bulls versus Suns. And it's Barkley's first time in the finals and he's loving it. I was going back and looking at some of my work then for the Sun Times. So I was assigned the Suns, basically, for the series. And I'd do a Suns notebook every day. And my Suns notebook would usually consist of just standing next to Charles' locker, <laughs> turning on my recorder, recording what he had to say. And, and there was one day, it's literally just kind of the best of Barkley. You know, Barkley on this, Barkley on that, Barkley on this. So he just had all these one-liners. And it was great. It was the easiest assignment I ever had. It's funny, after that series, the, the, the night 
it was a day game actually. Remember those Sunday day games? So game six was a day game. And we go to dinner afterward and Charles and his crew was at the table next to us at the Houston's in Phoenix. And we actually, we were like, you know what, let's send them a bottle of wine or champagne just to thank them for making our lives so easy during the previous week. Jordan, meanwhile, as Barkley is regaling the media, Jordan is in this self-constructed cage. He didn't even talk prior to the series. I think he talks after game one. Um, and they get in, they'll get into this in a documentary, too. Either game one or game two, he finally ends his media boycott, which he had instituted during the conference finals because he was mad about all the reporting about his gambling and his trip to Atlantic City in between games one and two of the conference finals against the Knicks. And so Michael is freezing out the media. And by the time the finals gets there, even on the off days, he's just kind of doing bare minimum media and he's really terse and he's getting annoyed because Charles is having so much fun and, you know, this isn't the time for fun. And Charles was saying stuff like, you know, God told me that we're going to win. We're destined to win. You know, and Michael's like, who is he to talk to God? I don't think <laughs> God's talking to Charles. You know, Michael was really resentful of Charles having so much fun. And I think it kind of offended him that the notion a great player could be enjoying himself during the finals when yes. this was the time to lock in. Yes, like it's, it's almost offensive to him that this guy's competing with me right now on the biggest stage. He's won this much and he's, he's almost belittling the, the stage here. When I'm watching this, I'm talking as someone who was born in 1986, okay? So when Michael Jordan's getting huge, I'm a little kid watching it and the idolatry of Michael Jordan for my generation is someone who never lost, someone who would never expect any sort of sportsmanship. He just ripped your throat out. He never lost a game. He never cried, anything like that. And so for my age and younger, I think watching The Last Dance is a reminder that this guy was human and that the idea of him being this cutthroat winner who uh, win at all costs, the guy who's 6-0 in the finals, I think we kind of start peeling back the layers a little bit and see that, um, you know, especially early on when you got to know him really well, he was a guy who at the end of that Pistons reign, so right before they swept him, he's at the back of his team bus crying with his father. Uh, he's talking about sportsmanship, shaking hands, and a guy who for the first three years in the NBA, he had a losing record. And so for the first you know, four episodes of this last dance, I think a lot of the experience for the younger generation watching this is, wait, I didn't know anything about this guy. Yeah, you've seen him as infallible as a player. Maybe you've mocked his, his dad genes and, you know, you've retweeted the crying Jordan memes, you kids and your memes. But, <laughs> you, but what you never thought of was that he was subject to all the criticism that LeBron faced and more. Um, one thing is that there wasn't a daily talk show on ESPN that, that would harp on him literally every day. Um, you know, back then, Mike Wilbon alluded to it this week, he, he only had the, the weekly sports reporters on TV. So he didn't face daily criticism. But the pack, the conventional wisdom, the NBA media establishment seriously doubted him and criticized him and his in inability to make his teammates better, his inability to, to triumph and to get over the hump, and that he was a selfish gunner, he only cared about his own stats. He was never going to be a champion. All of these things were charges and criticisms that were lobbied against him that 
you know, yeah, if you're younger, that you, you weren't around to remember what the, the hill that he had to climb, you know, all those losses. He lost nine of his first 10 playoff games. Um, you know, I don't even know how soon it was till he had a winning record. He's making the playoffs with a losing record, getting bounced in the first round. And then the Pistons are just sending him home time and again. And this huge mountain, it took him seven years to get to the top. And, you know, these days, I think we were ready to write somebody off if they don't win by year four. Yeah. Well, I think the fascinating thing is that LeBron was criticized for the exact opposite. He was not selfish enough. He was not a gunner. He was a guy who was worried about getting his teammates involved more than just asserting himself. And it's almost funny how the paradigm shifts that the narrative of being great means that you have to be the guy who takes the last second shot. You have to be the guy who, uh, who's, you know, not smiling and giggling and taking those uh, family photos before the games like he was in Cleveland. Like you have to be this humorless, uh, joyless killer out there. And LeBron just was not that guy. So in, in Miami, I remember this like it was yesterday. We're going out to dinner at ESPN and it's you, it's Brian Winhurst, John Hollinger, Mark Stein. Like we're all sitting there and I'm 25 years old, maybe 24 years old. And, uh, and you like tap me on the shoulder, Jay. And you're like, Hey man, uh, so heat index really cool. Like you're going to go down uh, to Miami and cover uh, LeBron. That's awesome, man. I'm like, yeah, thanks man. This is great. Jay. And you're like, where are you going to live? And I was like, I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm living in <laughs> Weathersfield. <laughs> I'm, I'm weather. I'm living in Weathersfield, Connecticut at the moment. And my girl, my then girlfriend, now wife, like we don't know where to go. And you just look at me like I'm crazy. And you say, "You're 25 years old, and you're considering any place other than South Beach." <laughs> I was like, I was like, touche. So like the next day, my wife and I, we we book uh, a weekend to go look at apartments in South Beach. And so I can owe it to you the fact that I lived in South Beach for six years. The fact that I lived there for six years is because of Jay Adande saying, "Are you nuts? How are you not just living in South Beach?" So thank you for so that. Funny. I, I, you're, you're welcome. It's so funny these conversations that you know you remember. Like I, I remember us going to dinner. I remember. You know, you were excited. I remember we talking that you were getting ready to go down. I don't remember dispensing that advice. I, it's funny. I do remember I told Bomani when he was getting ready to go down to Miami, I said, if you don't live near the water, you might as well be in Iowa. Yep. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's been my mentality for real estate in L.A. Or like you don't need an ocean view necessarily, but you at least got to be by the water. Otherwise, you might as well be living in Iowa. What's the point? Um, you know, I, I, I hope you can do a better job of preserving because – you know, well, one day they'll definitely be doing documentaries about the heat and the heatles and, and those four years down there that LeBron was there. Um, it, I just remember funny. The, one- the, the national conversation was so, there's so much venom for LeBron because he hadn't won yet. And he went to South Beach of all places, went to Miami, which was not the, the decision. Blue call, the decision. It was not the blue collar town of, of Akron, Ohio. This was the place where, everyone goes to just party, to just go outside and get, uh, just go party and lay out with supermodels. And so the idea of Miami was just as much about why people disliked his move from Cleveland to Miami. But I just remember I couldn't listen to the radio. I couldn't watch TV. I was so inundated with negativity and just hate on the air about the heat. I couldn't, I had to just shut it off or else I couldn't do my job because it was just so much... I remember at the time it was it was so many absolutes 
He was right. never going to win. And even when, even when they lost to the Celtics in the regular season, that was, a, that was an indication that LeBron could never get over that Celtics, the hump of the Celtics. And for, for LeBron, the Celtics were the Detroit Pistons. And so right. that's what LeBron was facing at the time. It's, and it's the opposite reasons that he was not selfish enough at Michael Jordan. Yeah. And to me, the dumbest thing was, and you probably remember hearing this a lot, the dumbest thing was this statement that he's just going to ride Dwayne Wade's coattails to a championship. That's no way to be a champion. And I'm thinking, so you're telling me, you don't think it's within the realm of possibility that the Heat can win a championship and LeBron can be the finals MVP. You know, which, <laughs> right. of course, both championships that they won, he was the finals MVP and de- deservedly so. Th- the notion that he w- and, and they did the same thing for Kevin Durant. Oh, he's going to ride the coattails. He's going to hop aboard. He was the finals MVP for both championships that he won with them. He was the best player on that team. LeBron didn't ride anybody's coattails. Kevin Durant didn't ride anybody's coattails. You know, um, now Durant didn't establish the culture there and, and, you know, create a winning culture. But he still was the best player on the championship team. That's not riding coattails. No. And, and in retrospect, it was just as foolish to think that Michael Jordan was incapable of leading a, a team to a championship. But we'd never seen anyone do it like that. We'd never seen a guy lead the league in scoring. It had only happened once in the previous 30 years or so with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We'd never seen a guy lead a league in scoring and win the championship doing it that way. And we certainly hadn't seen somebody do it from the shooting guard position. Um, so part of it was, was it Dr. J who said he's not seven feet that he, a, uh, a lot of people said it, including yeah. Rod Thorne who drafted him. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's be- because seven footers won the championships. It was pretty simple. Kareem and Moses Malone and, you know, even Robert Parrish, hall of famer, R- Larry Bird was you know the best player in those Celtic teams, but they had Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale. And Larry, so they like did that a, front line. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. You know, yeah. they did a lot of their damage inside and Bird was only taken three three-pointers a game, two or three three-pointers a game. I think one thing we need to look at, Michael, as an evolutionary step. You know, we look at him as he was the finished product and no one has lived up to that, but he didn't establish the true template for today, which I guess Steph Curry did. You know, now this three-point crazy shooting league, no one would take as many mid-range jumpers as Jordan did, but Jordan helped pull the game away from the basket. Yes. Right, and, and it was an interior game, and Jordan helped pull it away to now 16 to 20 feet And then Steph Curry and company took it even further to now where it's 23 feet, nine inches away. Um, But but Jordan is an important step to show that, look, you can win without everything being at the basket. So Michael Jordan was the first MVP that, or at least a a shooting guard. um, We're not talking Magic or Oscar who are point guards, big point guards. But Michael Jordan was the first in a long time that wasn't considered uh, like a big point guard. So you got to go Allen Iverson won in 2001, the MVP, but before Allen Iverson won, the last guy who was the smallest guy on the court to win the MVP was Bob Cousy, like 60 years ago. Right. Right. And then here comes Michael Jordan. Every, every MVP before Michael Jordan was either a huge point guard who was basically a forward who could handle like Oscar or, or, uh, or magic, or you're seven feet tall. You're a big, or just six eight, six nine. So, you're right. Is that Le- that LeBron James wasn't able to? Inf- I guess you could say like Kevin Durant. I guess follows in the same footsteps as LeBron in terms of a wing who had guard skills. But 
really Steph Curry, Steve Nash, Allen Iverson, um, Derek Rose. You know, all we're, these... we're forgetting somebody. We're leaving somebody out. And let's keep in mind that Detroit Piston fans are very sensitive after episodes three and four of The Last Dance, <laughs> which Ooh. revisited the bad boys and the walk-off. But Joe Dumars and Isaiah Thomas, I should say Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars, you know, that was a perimeter-based team too. So I think they need to get some credit for winning as a perimeter-oriented team. Now, they had better interior defenders probably than the Bulls did, but the Pistons were really a guard-based team, especially for their offense. But it still felt like, like when I think of that team, I'd love to look at their shot shot charts, but it just felt like a lot of 15-footers. Like It felt like Isaiah Thomas would dribble, pull up like Mm -hmm. 18-footer. Vinny Johnson felt like he took a lot of jumpers right around the free throw line. Joe Dumars. You know, like they were like a 15 to 18 foot. So like maybe not quite as far as Jordan. It's not like Jordan was a lot further, but, you know, so they, they were still like kind of around the paint, but jumpers in the paint rather than layups. And then I think Jordan, and not even necessarily first repeat Jordan, but really 96 to 98 Jordan, he's really extending the game away from the paint, but not quite out to the three-point line. But we need to give the Pistons some credit because I was thinking how many players below 6-9 had won the finals MVP before Jordan. But I think with the with the Pistons, you can look at it. But then before the Pistons, it's just all Kareem and Magic and Bird. And, you know, it's 6-9 it's guys, Moses Malone. So throughout the 80s, it's 6-9 and up. You know, and then in the 90s, all of a sudden, you know, if we count 89 as a pre prequel to the 90s with the Pistons, that's the other thing without the Pistons. They just don't fit neatly in the 80s or the 90s. You know, they're like this bridge. Yeah. They win one in 89, they win one in 90, and then Jordan, you know, wins the rest of the 90s when he plays full season. All right, let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation. Hey, this is Jason Goff, host of the Bulls Talk Podcast, and everybody is talking about Michael Jordan and The Last Dance, but nobody breaks it down better than former Bull Kendall Gill, longtime Bulls insider Casey Johnson, and Bulls outsider Big Dave Watts. I can understand why Michael was upset at Scotty because this was it for them, so why is he doing this and we are trying to win a championship? Subscribe to Bulls Talk right now to get recap podcasts automatically downloaded for free after every episode of The Last Dance. Now, back to the conversation. So now that we're here with the Pistons, what do you think about how the documentary depicted the walk-off and the Pistons' rivalry with the Bulls? Well, in fairness, they did give Isaiah his chance to make his case. But <laughs> given the perspective of this, you knew Jordan was going to get the last word. And it's just amazing how unwilling he was to even consider Isaiah's side. You know, they, they want to hear that. Yeah, they, they said, well, here's what I said. And he's just like... Already, he's like, I know what he's going to say. Like, he's made up his mind before he even hears what Isaiah has to say. And then when he watches it, he's like, yeah, see, like, he's coming with this BS, you know. I mean, that's just amazing. It shows you the level of hatred that exists still to this day. I just went back this morning. I was looking at some of the Chicago Tribune coverage of of that finals or that, that conference finals in 91. And just some of the off date quotes and the back and forth. God, I just missed that stuff. We're just the off day of a series. They're just going at each other. And it's funny because Rodman says, you know, they were mad that Jordan said that they were degrading the game with their style. And so Rodman says, you know, they're going to they're gonna have to win five or six championships before, you know, he has the right to say anything like that. Well, no guess what? Way. Jordan won five or six championships, you know, three of them with you. That's amazing. Yeah, let's unpack this. So 
So Isaiah, Isaiah says in the documentary that the reason why they walked off before the buzzer ends in 91 is because, A, well, they got their ass kicked, so it's a four-game sweep. And he says Bill Lambeer was the leader of this movement, right? Yeah, and, and Sally throws Lambeer into the bus, too. John Sally says, yeah, I checked back in. I asked Chuck Daly to put me back in the game because I didn't want to be a part of what Lambeer was orchestrating here. Because I, I didn't have the Jordan rules handy here. I don't know what I did with my copy. But in, in playing for keeps, Halberstam wrote, writes that it was Isaiah who led the, led the movement there. And so I think for, for the record, I think Isaiah was saying he was the one for a while. And then now it's Bill Lambeer. And it was because <laughs> of the Celtics did it. So what's the revisionist history? How much of this, J.A., is just trying to rationalize what they did and how much of it is, is real? Like, like who do you, how do you think this really played out? You do have to take into account what, what Jordan said and how peeved they were. I do believe that, you know, the, the Celtics had left early. But, but the funny thing is there's that clip of, of Isaiah and Mikhail. And you used to see that clip all the time. And to me, I always kind of liked it because – Mikhail was basically telling them, like, hey, go finish it off. And I like the fact that the Eastern teams hated each other, but they hated the Lakers more. And even though I was rooting for the Lakers, <laughs> With, I like team respect East. that hatred. Yeah, like go yeah. East. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like like the famous – so pe- a lot of people don't understand. The Beat LA chant, it started because the Celtics fans, as they're losing to the Sixers in the conference finals in 82, um, they realize, okay, we're going down to the Sixers. But you know what? You guys, they start chanting, B-L-A. So they didn't, the Celtics had no say in the matter. They were about to be eliminated. But the Celtic fans were telling the 76ers, B-L-A, B-L-A. And I love it because it's basically saying, we hate you, but we hate them more than we hate you. So we want you to beat them. We'll be happy as much as we hate you. We'll be happy if you win the championship because at least those guys in L.A. didn't win the championship. And I love, and again, even though I detested the Celtics, I love and respect that level of hatred and rivalry. That you're that committed to the rivalry that you'd rather see your rival beat your worst rival. (laughs) So I thought it was really interesting that Michael Jordan was the guy who was like, hey, sportsmanship guys. Like it's the right thing to do to shake hands. Just like I did when I lost to you guys last year and the year before, I shook your hands. And so the idea is... Like Michael Jordan's a killer. He's a guy who doesn't care for those pleasantries. He's a guy who who would actually endorse just like, I'm so upset that I got beat, I got swept, that I'm not even going to like acknowledge those people on the other side of the court. Like I would imagine that would be what a 20-year-old would imagine uh, Michael Jordan doing in that situation. But I found it fascinating in the, in the, in the footage, the Pistons had to walk by the bench. Yes, and that's what makes it worse. So, so they were mad at the Celtics for just leaving and walking off the court, but the, the Celtics didn't walk directly in front of them. <laughs> they were like within like breathing distance. Yeah. Like there's Michael just watching them walk by them. And, 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 and the way Isaiah like kind of ducks his head, like he knows he's wrong, right? He's walking by and he can't bring himself to look them in the eye when he walks by. So, and just the, that bob and weave, and it's funny, Chris Weber does a hilarious impression of it you know, a guy who grew up watching that team in Detroit. And uh, just that, that little bob and weave that Isaiah does, <laughs> walking by the bench, kind of trying to like duck because they know they were wrong to do it that way, to walk in front. And a lot of business friends were, oh, that's what, you know, they had to go that way to get to the locker room. Well, then if you're going that way anyway, you might as well, you know, a little pat, 
shake their hand, whatever. But actually what was new and revisionist to me was the, the clips of Jordan shaking their hands, you know, in 90 and 89. And I wasn't aware of that. So having seen that now for the first time, I understand a little bit more why it hurt the, the Bulls so much when, when they saw the Pistons walk off. But I will say this. I mean, that, that walk off was part of the lore for a long time. So it's not like this has just been resurfaced. I mean, this has been a part of Bulls Pistons and Jordan versus Isaiah for a long time. I mean, Chicago, they're still agitated about that. And in, and in Detroit, they're still agitated about what Jordan said. So I'm reading this. I dug up this clip uh, by Sam Smith in Tribune. This is like before, you know, this, this might be after the season. The headline is Bulls make NBA safe for solid basketball. <laughs> hmm. So Robin says, they didn't give us any credit. All they did was complain the whole time. You're bad for basketball. You shouldn't even be here. Why doesn't he, Jordan, buy the team? He has all the money. This team's worth about $200 million. Why doesn't he buy it and change the organization if he's that good? They still haven't proved anything, added Rodman. They've got to win about five or six championships before they're a great team. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. But now they can go home and rest in peace. The world is safe again. Life without the Pistons is safe. <laughs> That's great. And when Jordan comes back, he says, you see two different styles with us and them. The dirty play and the fragrant fouls and unsportsmanlike conduct. Hopefully that will be eliminated from the game. I think we play clean basketball. We don't go out and try to hurt people and dirty up the game. And this is key. You never lose respect for the champions, but I haven't agreed with the methods they use. So he's giving them their respect as championship teams. And I think that a lot of the Pistons felt slighted that he hadn't done that. Um, but he says, but I, I don't agree with the methods they use. And you'd see them revisit this, the Bulls would, when they played the Knicks a couple years later. And the Knicks you know, because of the roster that they had, which wasn't very talented, yep. you know, so they had to grab and hold and push and shove as well. And so you had some of that same, you know, for the good of the game, you know, the Bulls were represented the pure, they, this is how they portrayed themselves, was representing the purity and the right way to play the game versus these people who wanted to drag down and besmirch the beautiful game of basketball. So I like the idea that Michael Jordan is like a basketball purist. Um, the idea that he wants it to be clean, that he wants it to be not a different sport because you're, the equalizer, of course, in the whole Jordan rules is we're not as good or as talented as Michael. So we have to make him afraid of us and just knock him on his Now, I like that idea. I, me, just ideologically, I'd rather watch basketball where the the idea is to play basketball and it's about jazz. It's about movement. It's, right. about, it's about passing and, and it's a beautiful game. Whereas when you're not as good as someone else, you make it about boxing, you make it about football. Right. And I'm like, I don't, me personally, like the spirit of the game is not that. Now I get why people are nostalgic for the nineties or the eighties, um, bad boys, pistons. But to me, it's almost a crutch is that like, you can't beat that dude. So you're going to turn it into a different sport. Am I wrong? No, it, it, that's nineties basketball. Wasn't that good. You know, <laughs> like the style of play today, is much better. It's so funny how people get nostalgic. And this happened when the bad boys, it, it's kind of interesting. It's just like the same network, right? So it's not like ESPN has a thing for the Pistons, but I think they've seen it's, it's a lot more lucrative to, to take the bull side. You know, you've seen how people are flocking and, and the ratings are incredible for this Jordan documentary. Um, but they did do the bad boys and the bad boys was presented as very nostalgic. And, you know, the bad boys got their say and they were, portrayed in a very loving light, I would say, in that Bad Boys documentary, which was very good. And what I thought was disingenuous, actually, was people's reaction to it. Because people are like, oh, man, I miss this, this team. I miss the, 
90s, blah, blah, blah. I miss the bad boys. You hated the bad boys. If you weren't from Detroit, people hated this team. They hated what they were doing. In, in one sense, the Bulls were right in that the majority of people were on their side. You know, the majority of people did want to see Air Jordan flying through the sky rather than being knocked around, you know, because the Pistons most likely had come to town and knocked their guys around. You know, if, if mm -hmm. you were anywhere outside of Detroit, you didn't want to see them succeed. You hated that team. You hated Bill Lambeer. And I thought, I thought it was revisionist for people to say they were nostalgic for the bad boys because you didn't like them during their time. And now all of a sudden you like them. And now all these people are saying, oh, it was so much better in the 90s when you could knock people to the ground. No, people thought the game was taking a terrible turn. The Cleveland Cavaliers, who weren't as physical as the, um, as the bad boy Pistons, and, and this is kind of the mid-90s Cavaliers. So after they had their shot, Michael shot them down. They were never quite the same. Mike Fratello comes in, takes a look at the roster, and says, we're just going to slow it down. And – I mean, I'm sure you have access to the numbers. You see what the scoring trends were. That's why they had to bring the three-point line in. Scoring was just cratering in the NBA, so they're saying, okay, we need to do something. Let's, uh, let's bring in the three-point line. What the problem was that made it even easier for the defenses to pack in because now they didn't have to cover <laughs> as much space to, to cover a three-point shooter, right? You could recover faster to the three-point shooters with the shorter line. So that's why they moved it back out. But there was this battle for the soul of the game and I think it's revisionist where people are nostalgic for the Pistons now because, put it this way, I mean, the reason why they moved the three-point line in was a reaction to what was happening led by the Pistons that the league didn't want it that way, the fans didn't want it that way, the ratings were going down. You know, no one outside of Detroit was clamoring for that style of basketball. But now everybody says like, oh, it was so much better in the 90s we can knock people to the ground. I think it's just a way to knock down today's players. It's just a way to say, you guys are soft. You didn't grow up like we did. And this is not just, this is not, you know, specific to basketball. This is in all walks of life. Right. I wanted to ask you about Rodman too, is the episode about Rodman isn't really only about, I think there was, you know, maybe half the episode was specifically about Rodman, but it's also about his relationship with Phil and, and, the way that the Pistons came up and kind of built LeBron into, I mean, uh, Michael Jordan into who he is. Now, there's a lot of talk about the Carmen Electra thing here and the vacation. So what do you remember at the time? What was going on there? It was funny. I don't remember it so much back then. And which kind of says people are like, oh my God, could you imagine this happened today? And probably it's disingenuous. Somebody just reminded me, remember, LeBron just took off and went to Miami <laughs> one of the years in Cleveland, right? So, like, it's not unheard of to have a little mini hiatus. Um, you know, Dennis just did it in a more spectacular fashion. LeBron kind of was hiding out down in Miami, but Dennis was, was wild enough. And remember, Dennis takes off in the middle of the finals in an upcoming episode to go do a WWE wrestling, yeah. right? In 97, I think it is. You know, in the middle of the finals, he goes off and he's wrestling in – Michigan. So <laughs> it wasn't unprecedented and it wasn't the last time. And the, the, the funny thing is, actually, I heard Michael Jordan tell this story with some additional details, which made it even better. But he, he, he told the story one year at an at a all-star party and he kind of gathered and everyone was surrounding him. And actually, John Barry kind of goaded him into telling some, some stories. And yeah, he tells a story about the time, how he had to go retrieve Rodman. You know, Phil, Phil said to go get him. And 
See, it, it's, it's already gotten misconstrued. People think that Jordan flew to Las Vegas and got him out of a hotel. No, like Dennis had already come back from Vegas, but he still hadn't rejoined the team. But he was back in Chicago. And so Jordan drives down into Chicago and like goes into this sordid place where Dennis was staying, <laughs> apparently squalor. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, just like grabs him and brings him back up to practice. Um, and it's funny because I just don't remember. You notice they don't have like a lot of headlines and stuff from that. You know, like they, they've been showing the headlines in this. It was pretty quiet. Yeah. I don't remember it games. being as big a deal at the time. Right, because it was January 18th. They played at home against Houston, uh, and then he misses the next two games, and then he plays again on the 25th. So he's out for like four or five days. And that's 97, 98, right? I'm, I'm going to go look up those, yep. Yep. those stories in the, in the archives as well. So 97, um, 98, it's uh, like the dog days of the season, and, and Rodman just wants to check out, and he wants to right. go. And so he gets the 48 hours. So in there, it's like a five-day break. In there, he goes for his 48 hours in Vegas. And I, watching at home, I thought he knocked on the Vegas hotel room. I thought he yeah. did. And, and that's not a knock on the, the last dance, but it, it seemed like when, you, when you're watching, that seems like the logical thing is that, that Michael was like, yeah. no, he didn't come home on time. So I had to right. go out and, and get him and get him at his back to practice. Yeah, and, and you weren't the only one that thought that. I mean, I think that's the prevailing notion right now based on watching it and it's so it's a little bit of a of a slip up on their part and that, that is their fault if they didn't make it clear you know and, and this is an extremely well done documentary but in this case they didn't you know they the narrative didn't make it that clear that michael went into chicago that's really like the one slip up you know that they've had but it, it's just taking a life of his own now like oh my god michael jordan flew to vegas to get rodman like, no, he didn't fly to Vegas. He drove into Chicago to get him. The other minor thing is that the, uh, the, the load management with Jerry Krause about how he only could play 14 minutes a game, that was like for a couple games. When, when he came back and When he came back from the foot injury and it was right. an amazing like back and forth with him and Jerry Reinsdorf right. about the 10%. I mean, that was such gold. I mean, it was great. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was so much fun to watch. And like then, of course, in my head, I'm like, oh, as the DMP rest guy, the load management guy, I'm going to hear it a lot about like how, you know, Michael just wants to go out there and, and load management, like, you know, ruined his season. They're holding him out, even though it seems like there's only a little bit of chance that he could re-injure this thing. But the 14 minute thing was actually just for a few games. And then they slowly ramped it up. So by the time he gets to the playoffs, he's playing like, 30 like at the end of the regular season he's playing 30 plus minutes a game so when <laughs> you're watching the plays. documentary you think that they unleash him for just the Celtics series but right, yeah he, but they've he, been ramping it, up. it back up um one thing I'll say about Michael in defense you know the anti-load management thing if you look so besides that year when he hurts his foot early in the year and besides the year he comes back from playing baseball and only plays 17 regular season games I think maybe five or six years of playing all 82 with the Bulls. All the other years, it's like 79 plus. It's like <laughs> it's 79, nice. 80, 81, 82. You know, and then the fact that it's not part of this documentary, but his last year with the Wizards at age 40, he plays all 82. He plays only 60 his first year with the Wizards, kind of has to curtail the season with a knee injury early. And then I'll never forget Chip Schaefer, who was his trainer with the Bulls and was with the Lakers when Michael played in Washington. He comes in the locker room, Michael's last visit, he says, I told people before the season, if nothing else, I knew you were going to play all 82. He was just determined, <laughs> you know. And um, so there's that. But there's also the fact that he took a year and a half off in the middle of his career. He just burned out 
you know, and I don't buy into the conspiracy, the gambling, all that stuff. And they get into that later in the documentary. You know, there's there's no evidence for that to support that. There never has been in 25 years. But I do buy that that he burned out and, um, you know, he needed that that time away. And he was signaling even before he retired that he was going to take that time away. LeBron never had that. You know, LeBron went to eight straight finals. And so I feel like he's entitled to load yeah. manage. He's in fi- entitled to even coast when he does play to not go all out. I mean, like, when was the last time he had a chase down block in a regular season game? You know, like, <laughs> you, if you watch the games, he's, he's picking his spots in the regular season. But I allow them people, oh, Michael would never do it. Well, Michael took a year and a half off in the middle of his career. LeBron didn't have a year and a half off in the middle of his career. You know, the closest thing to a break LeBron's had is last year when how many games did he miss because of the injury? Like, he, yeah, he missed games like he's ever played, right? 20 games, 25 games. So, and then didn't play in the playoffs. So yeah. that was his time off. But and he looks great this year. Yeah. And, so, and, and to your point, to your point, I think the reverse is true is that Michael was so good in that Celtics series. What if it is because he had the year off? You know, what if it is because they, they slowly built him back up? And, and didn't actually, right when he was ready to play, hey, you're going to play 45 minutes a so, night. So you're going to use that game for the case for load management? I'm going to use that series as a case for load management. It's a banner. <laughs> I'm putting it out there. Hey, you might think that Michael Jordan should have been playing more minutes beforehand and Jerry Krause was wrong. But what if he was right? What if Jerry Krause was like, you know what? I'm saving you up for the playoffs and we're going to ramp you up. And you know what? I'm going to let you go play 35. I don't, I'm sure that Jerry Krause wasn't imagining the Celtics series, but that's my thing is what if those, what if the careful minutes load management minutes restrictions that they had, what if it helped him to save his legs for that Celtics series? And that's why it was awesome. Well, what's interesting is, again, rereading these 1991 conference finals is, so Michael actually skips a practice during that series. He says, my, told Phil, my knees are sore. So he sits out of practice, and then he's talking about just how, you know, run down he is. So this, to na- at, at this point, this is the most exertion he has. Back-to-back conference finals, right? Like, this is a lot of basketball he'd been playing. The most he'd been playing, well, you know, was over that two-year stretch in, in the 1990 playoffs and the 1991 playoffs. And, um, you know, I think you see him getting a little tired in the 91 conference finals and, and he talks about it and maybe even a little bit, you know, took a while to get his win back for the, the NBA finals that year. You definitely see this team running on fumes at the end of the 98 finals. You know, the whole team, it had been three straight years. And Steve Kerr talks about that, you know, that the load that it took. And maybe that team could have been better load managed. Also, here's more load management. So in 92-93, <laughs> which was the first three-peat for the Bulls. Remember, Jordan and Pippen play in the, in the Olympics that year. So Phil yep. basically gives them training camp off, mm. you know, either reduced load or just, you know, skip days entirely because you exerted yourselves a lot up the season in the, in the summer coming off back-to-back championship runs. And Horace Grant gets jealous because, hey, I'm a big part of these three P teams. How come they get time off and I don't? Well, they played in the Olympics and you didn't. <laughs> but there was Phil load yeah. managing a little bit, you know, just but not in the regular season. Like that's one thing about Michael was he was not going to take on that. And and this comes through in the documentary was just this belief that he owed it to the fans to perform. And Scotty Pippen was cheating the game when he decided to take. Yeah, him. he's he was resentful, Scotty. And think about in the first episode when they play in um in France. You know, he gives him a good showing in France because he knows 
they came to see Michael Jordan and he doesn't want them leaving disappointed. So that's one thing that comes through in the documentary is he's just fundamentally wired to not disappoint people. And maybe he's not doing it for their disappointment, but it would disappoint himself and his work ethic and his belief of the commitment to the game to not exert yourself. If this game is scheduled, people have paid their money for these tickets. People have expectations for Michael Jordan. He wanted to deliver on those expectations as much as he could. And I think that's admirable. So how, how do you reconcile that with two retiring two times he retired? Yeah. And you can also say, um, you know, how do you get mad at Kraus for breaking up the team when Jordan broke up the team first in 93 by retiring? I reconcile it. Here's how I think it's very easy to reconcile it is that because he did go all out because he knew only one way. Right. And I think it was the extremes. Either I'm going to play all 82 games yeah. and push, 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 push until we win the championship, or I'm going to walk away because well, I can't do it any other way. And I'm exhausted from doing it that way for these three years. And, and even the years building up to that when they're battling the Pistons in the playoffs. So here's a, here's a great quote from uh, playing for keeps again by David Halverson. The, uh, in game three in Los Angeles, this is 91 in the finals against Magic. Jordan hit a 14-foot jump shot over Byron Scott with 3.4 seconds left to tie the game and send it into overtime. The Bulls, younger and fresher, went on to win, but Jordan had injured his big toe when he landed after making the tying shot. The pain was immediate. He thought at first that it was broken, and it affected his ability to start and stop. Chip Schaefer, the Bulls trainer that you mentioned earlier, Jay, since 90, 1990, tried to reconstruct Try to construct a special shoe designed to give his toe extra protection. But when he tried it out, he found out he could not make his normal cuts. So just before tip-off for game four, Michael Jordan turned to Schaefer and said, give me the pain. He would wow. wear his regular shoe <laughs> and would deal with the pain. And he scored 36 points in game four, the third straight Chicago victory. I mean, and that's the type of stuff that just adds to the lore of Jordan, right? Give me the pain. You know, it's like Ronnie Lott type stuff almost, <laughs> if you're familiar with his story with the San Francisco 49ers. Yes. Chop so, off the finger. Yeah. Exactly. That's him. I, I don't think it's hypocritical to, um, for him to take time off in the midst of his prime because he just couldn't. And the thought of him not being able to give that maximum exertion of effort um, was just unsustainable to him. So... I, I, I can easily reconcile those two different things. But I think if you're going to do that, then you can't criticize LeBron for taking time off in the midst of the season while he's in the process of going through eight straight finals. I yeah. can't underline and emphasize <laughs> enough just how remarkable that is. And again, this isn't Bill like Russell where he needed to win. Finals. Bill Russell needed to win one series before he got right. into the finals. <laughs> one one you know, series. So like it's it's apples and oranges if you want to say, hey, you, got, you know, the Celtics were able to do that back in the day. I'm like, no, LeBron had to win three series right. just to get yeah. into the finals. And expand his series. So like even when Jordan's going to the three-peat in, um, in the 90s, it's best of five in the first round. Yeah. And if you think about, okay, five instead of seven. But if you think about it, even if you sweep, and LeBron did this twice where he had, you know, four-year runs. He had two four-year runs. So even if you sweep, um, the first round every year, which he didn't obviously, but even if you were to do that every four years, that's an extra playoff series, right? That's yep. four extra games every four years, which is a, a full playoff series sweep. So if you think about it in those eight years of going to the finals, he played two additional series that somebody like magic in the eighties or even Jordan in the nineties 
wouldn't have had to play to 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 eight Pete as a conference champion. So what, I want to ask you about this because it ties in all of this. Is back uh, I think in 2010 when Scotty was being enshrined, you wrote a column that had Scotty Pippen as the best number two, arguing that Scotty is the best number two ever. And I'm wondering because you also covered the Lakers with Shaq and Kobe, why you think that Scotty was better at being the number two than say Shaq or Kobe or Dwayne Wade or LeBron James. Is it because there was a clear demarcation point that made him the best number two? Yes, because he was committed to the role of number two. And also, forgive me for a moment, but I'm going to go rings argument. Name another number two that won six, right? (laughs) As riding shotgun, at least, you know, post Bill Russell. So I I should have qualified it. I'm going to make this argument from the 79-80 season on, you know, the modern era of the NBA, three-point line, the Magic Bird era, et cetera. So the best number two man in that area, why is Scotty A, name me another guy who won six championships as a number two guy, and uh, name me another guy who who played the number two role the entire time and understood that and mastered the role. And so when I say best number two guy, not necessarily the best guy – who was the number two guy? Because if you're going to say Kobe was, you know, number two to Shaq, then yes, Kobe's better than Scottie Pippen, but the best at playing that number two role. And Scotty, Kobe is actually disqualified because, you know, the Lakers went three years that I went in a playoff series specifically because Kobe wasn't happy playing the number two. He wanted to get his crack at number one, even if that meant Shaq had to be bounced. So he's disqualified from the argument for best number two. All, and everyone else that you mentioned, so it, it, it's not best duo. I'm not, I'm not necessarily prepared to say Michael and Scotty are the best duo, even though they've got more rings than any other modern duo, right? Right. But, um, you know, you could say, you know, I'm, it'd be very easy for me to say Magic and Kareem are the best duo. But the reason why there's a diff- I differentiate between best duo and Scotty is the best number two, almost every other duo you can think of at some point – both of those guys won a finals MVP, which meant that they were number one at the very least for that time. You know, Dwayne Wade was a finals MVP in 2006. Both Kobe and Shaq were finals MVPs, you know, over the the 10 year span in LA. Kareem and Magic both won finals MVPs. So you had great duos, but you never had someone who just perfected the role of being the secondary guy. It was never a question of whose team is it, it's him. So he was the best number two guy because the, of the commitment to the role and the extended success of the number two. So and he could have been the number one. He, and he obviously felt like at times he felt disrespected by Jerry Krause and wanted out. But in that 95 season, Bulls won 55 games with Scotty as the number one. He was number yeah, three. You know what's interesting though? He was the number three in the MVP, MVP vote that year. Um, he was. I voted for him. He got seven first place votes. And one you of were one of them? And, yeah, that might have been proximity bias. You know, if, <laughs> if I had been at the Houston Chronicle and seen Akeem, I probably would have voted for him. But I really, you know, like, especially sitting courtside back then, and you could, like, hear the conversations that Scotty was having with Phil and just how in tune to the game, you know, like, you want to take a foul here? You want to go two for one? Just He was just so locked in, all these little details of the game. And he did so much for that team, obviously. I have no regrets at all voting him number one, um, you know, for, for MVP. Akeem obviously had a great year. Um, won the championship that year, but actually w- was 94, which was the year Dave Robinson won it over Akeem. I keep forgetting Akeem won it in 94 or 95. I think um, it's 94. Okay. Um, you know, Scotty, Scotty didn't win that year, but 
I was one of seven that voted for him. Again, I was affected. I would admit that I was affected, but I was really impressed. I like to me, he fulfilled what um, a most valuable player should do, you know, playing both ends of the court. Um, what's interesting is that his scoring average only went up by one point. Yeah. You know, so he didn't do it by scoring based on his previous career highs. Previous career highs, 21 points that year, he averaged 22 points a game. You know, but but he just meant so much. He he was so much more talented than anyone else on the team. He had to bear such a load. You know, he had to create shots for other guys. Um, you know, he wasn't the best at scoring himself, but everything that team did offensively revolved around him. He'd bring the ball up the court. He could push it in transition. Um, you know, and he was a threat that the defense had the key on, so that you know, if if um, if he initiated the offense, he could create scoring opportunities for the other players. It's always interesting to talk about Kobe in the shadow of Michael and how much he got from Michael. And you were kind of this connective tissue between Michael and Kobe. And, and I'm wondering, did you, did you strengthen your relationship with Kobe over the years because you had been up close and personal with Michael? Did you share stories about Michael with Kobe? And did he ask you about that? And secondly, I'm wondering what that was like for you to watch Michael Jordan at the podium at the memorial service for Kobe Bryant and what, what went through your head as you're watching Michael just melt down emotionally about it. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that. I want to hit on your earlier points. Um, Kobe didn't come to me to talk Michael because he had direct access to Michael. Um, and so it's interesting. Some other players like Jamal Crawford, I remember would ask me like, what was it like Michael? You know, so Jamal who was fascinated by Michael, but maybe didn't have quite the exposure to him that Kobe did. Um, you know, Kobe being a little bit older too. So other players might ask me about Michael. Kobe never asked me about Michael. Um, again, because he had that direct, and it's kind of cool. You got a little hint of it in the teaser for the next episodes, just that, you know, how they kind of cross paths there for a couple of years. Kobe's first couple of years in the league, you know, cross paths with the real MJ, not the Wizards yeah. one that Kobe like <laughs> torched for 40 points and a half. That, that didn't even count. Um, but, uh, and, so actually, kind of Kobe gave me more insight into Michael than I gave Kobe in, insight into Michael, you know, because he just recounts some of their conversations. And one thing that sticks with me is he talked about how Michael told him at that 98 All-Star game, he says, don't forget to stay aggressive. And Kobe said initially, he was like, what do you mean stay aggressive? Like, of course I'm going to stay aggressive. You know, like Kobe was almost insulted that Michael felt the need to tell him that. And then as the second half of the season went on, and, you know, it's your third game in five days and three cities and all that stuff that comes with the NBA and you're just dragging yourself to the arena. And Kobe realized, like, this is what he's talking about, that you have to find a way, even in these situations, to stay aggressive. You know, he's like, now I get it. So it's kind of cool. Like, he took me through the learning process through Michael and how even he doubted some of the things that Michael had to say and that he came to realize the wisdom of that. Um, another thing that sticks out is, uh, oh, you know what it was? Because so I didn't in this time, in this case, I relayed something to Kobe. And that was how. Um, so when when Kobe had like that run, he was scoring like 40 points for whatever consecutive games. This is Michael's Michael's playing with the Wizards. I happen to be on the East Coast and I go and I talk to Michael about it. And Michael says, you know what? I'm starting to see in Kobe what I had. And that's that desire to separate from the other players and mm -hmm. that you know people were comparing me to Clyde Drexler or you know whoever the players of my era was and I wanted to show that I was above them and now Kobe is showing that desire that 
you know, you're not going to speak about the Tracy McGrady's and the Vince Carter's and probably LeBron, even at that point, you know, he wants to separate himself from all those guys, Iverson too. And, you know, and that's really what he's seeing. And, and I relate that to Kobe and he, he, he was really pleased. And it was the one time when I heard him compare himself to Michael, everyone else made that comparison all the time. Kobe was reluctant to do so. And I think, probably because he realized he couldn't win that battle. You know, eventually it dawned on him, no matter what I do, 81 points, whatever, like they're not going to put me ahead of Michael. So he just kind of resigned himself to the fact that in the public eye, he was never going to um, surpass Michael. But uh, what he did do was compare make the, the one and only time I remember him making the comparison himself. He said, where Michael and I were different was that, you know, we did it by scoring and we were going to be aggressive and score and we were unapologetic in leading that way and and in trying to beat you that way through scoring, you know, magic and bird, you know, they were going to try to get everybody involved and play an all around game. Mm -hmm. Like we're here to score points and that's how we're going to beat you. And, you know, we make no apology for that. And that was the one time where he really compared himself to Michael. And you know what? He earned the right. He did play like Michael. He, he clearly incorporated a lot of his game from Michael and his early style. He tried to jack from Michael, but I remember especially, and it was really evident that last time that I referred when he played him and he just, again, torched him <laughs> 40 point, And just, he was playing though with this rage and this fury in his eye that I had only ever seen in Michael Jordan. And pay attention when you're watching the documentary, just look at the intensity in Michael's face and the, the, the level of, of, of rage that he plays with. And um, Kobe could work himself up to that level. And some of it was manufactured. Remember, he'd do his kind of grouch face. You know, he yeah. kind of looked like a gargoyle. That was a little bit affected, I thought. But I, but I allowed him that because I'd say, you know what, whatever it takes for him to get himself into this mental place that he feels is necessary to, to win championships. So I would kind of, I'd say, okay, Kobe, I, yeah, that, that's a little bit much, but I, I'll allow it. But very few guys had that. You, you don't see that with LeBron. LeBron is a great player. Um, you don't see, and he doesn't feel the need, you know, LeBron would rather play from a place of joy and, and, you know, the beautiful game as he's always calling it a beautiful sport, you know, but, but Michael and Kobe just wanted to work themselves into this froth and lather and just have an assassin's mentality. And that's where they were the same. And, um, you know, that's why it, it really did hurt Michael to, to show his emotions in front of everybody. He always wanted to maintain that, that difficult Steely, exterior. Yeah. yeah. And so, yep. Mm-hmm. But that was really the testament to Kobe. Like, oh, my God, he's got me doing this. I can't believe it. You know, like he, he knows Kobe would get such a kick out of the fact that Kobe's loss in his memory reduced Michael to, to this blubbering mess. <laughs> and um, it, it was, A, it, it was significant. First of all, it was just this, it just let so much air out of the room when he made the joke about the meme. <laughs> because like, because everybody was thinking it you know, yep. like, like oh my god you know we're in there and you're seeing jordan on the big screen you know i don't know what it looked like at home but in the in the arena you know they're showing him on the big screen and just tears are screaming like oh my yeah. god it's the crying jordan, crying jordan meme you got yeah yeah and then for him to reference it and just like it allowed everyone to exhale you know like everyone was like we're all thinking it and like for him to say it too like it, it just it was like a, a relief as much as anything like he's in on the joke and um yeah, it was just powerful. And to me, the most touching moment, the photograph, it actually happened earlier when uh, Vanessa, who showed incredible bravery, 
and courage to get up there and composure to to speak without just completely losing it. Uh, I didn't think we'd hear from her at all. And then she gets up there and delivers that very poignant speech early on. And then as she's leaving and uh, stepping down off the stage, up the little staircase they had, Michael steps up and offers his hand to help her walk down the stairs in her heels. Yep. And um, there's a great still photo of that. And it's funny because he's not looking at her, um, but he's just offering his hand and she's taking it. And just that um, so much respect being paid to her, but it's also to Kobe. Just his whole presence there is respect to Kobe, you know, and then just this moment to get up out of the seat and, and help her down. It's just a great tribute to both her and to him. And, um, you know, I thought that moment, as much as anything that he had to say, was amazing. But I, I've, I've never heard Michael speak to his emotions like he did. Never. You know, it was just stunning to get up there and just hear him. And also how he talked about it was going to change him and it was going to, you know, he was going to try to be a better person. And you never heard Michael say this kind of philosophical stuff, right? I'm, and I've had the opportunity to hear Michael in a kind of a variety of different modes. And I've never heard him wax about life philosophies as he did at that moment. Beyond the, just the enormity of, of dealing with the grief of Kobe Bryant dying, but what, is there a certain place that Michael's in right now that, that he's, it's hitting him a certain way? Yeah, and, and I'd urge you to read Wright Thompson's Look at Michael Jordan Turning 50, which was seven years ago. Um, you know, he, Wright really got Michael to open up in a way that we really hadn't seen previously, but you, you definitely get the sense for a man confronting his mortality. And so this even more so, and to see somebody younger than him die, um, somebody who exhibited a number of the same, uh, you know, the same qualities that Michael had. Again, he saw himself in Kobe. So to see that die, I think, yeah, it does make him feel more, um, uh, more fragile. And also I think, a little bit of jealousy about how Kobe had found the second act that was satisfactory to a degree that Michael, I don't think has. Yeah. I was, yep. I was thinking that I was thinking you know, that so. because, and even, even now when he's, when Michael is doing these interviews, he's got his, uh, his tequila, his branded yeah, tequila sitting cigar, down next to him. Yeah. He's a businessman. Like he is like, that's, he's always promoting. Right. And he's got his cigar, he's got his tequila and he's, and he's talking about himself. And I, and I, I was thinking, like, that's MJ right there. And he didn't have this second dimension that Kobe did, you know? And I, and I, and I think you're right, is that maybe, maybe there is some sort of jealousy that there is that second act that, that MJ uh, hasn't. I mean, the fact that he's an owner in one of the 30 teams in the, in the NBA is huge. It's a huge. It's a huge statement for him. I do think that you're right on that. And, you know, he kind of had this scrape together the funds to, to buy this. So there's a great Michael Leahy story in the Washington Post magazine um, when Jordan is an executive and he had great access and he's, he sits in the meeting room um, or, you know, like Jordan couldn't even stand to watch the games live. He'd go in his bunker and, 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 and watch the games on TV and just fume and throw the remotes around and stuff like that. But part of it, I think it's in it. Maybe it's in the Halberstam book. It, it could be in the Halberstam where, where they talk about how, Jordan didn't have the money to play with the big boys like this. You know, like Jordan made great money. He's made even more money in the, in the 20 years since that story was written. But especially at that time, he didn't have buy an NBA team kind of money, no. you know, and he certainly, I mean, he's lucky he got in before, 
you know, the Clippers reset the, the market and now everything is $2 billion and up because he wouldn't have been able to get in. He just doesn't have that type of money and, and can't even, you know, couldn't get a significant role. I, I'm sure he could partner with the people that have that money, but he wouldn't get a role that, to his satisfaction. And I don't think that would be a, a, a desirable scenario for him to, to be such a silent voice, you know, and, and I think he'd be very conscious of people just using his name. You know, like like that kind of happened with Magic, and Magic was more than willing to do so with the ownership group that bought the Dodgers. Magic's stake, actual stake, is very small, but they were more than willing to let him be the front man yep. and and go out and do all the press conferences and this and that. You know, way disproportionate to the actual ownership stake that he holds. Um, I don't think Michael Jordan would want to be, you know, the the front man and the face of the franchise if he didn't have real significant um, ownership stake. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's kind of always been a thing. And it's, it, I think it's tough for him that, you know, he can't compete with the Warriors and the Joe Lacobs and the, and the Peter Goobers and, you know, all these tech guys that are coming in. Like, he can't compete in that realm. Financially, as successful as, he, as he's been, this is a whole different level that these tech guys and these, these venture capital fund guys are playing at. And it frustrates him to no end that he can't play at their level. When his whole life, he's used to playing at levels higher than everybody else, just going out and beating them. He can't beat them in this realm. So, so why do you think he greenlit this doc? Is it really about his insecurity with LeBron? I don't know if insecurity, but I do think, you know, wanting his story to be told. And um, obviously this does happen before Kobe leaves, but wanting to have the final say. And, and remember, they came to him. I, I think what it was, was he was more receptive to it because of the, the changing nature and, you know, because I think LeBron was starting to, to build up his case for, for being the GOAT. So it's not like Michael called him up and said, hey, you know, take it out of the vault right now. You know, I'm ready. But <laughs> yeah. they said, hey, this would be a good time. And I think they were starting to think like, it's now or never, you know, like, you know, at some point people are going to kind of move on and it's not going to be worth revisiting. And, uh, you know, we can get everyone now that, you know, all the principals, except for Krauss, obviously, yeah. are still around. You know, let's do it. And I think Jordan was more receptive. I, I think they came at the right time and with the right people who were making the request. That's why. Speaking of the right time, we're dealing with a pandemic at the moment. You're teaching its a class or classes at Medill through Zoom, and I'm, and you're doing a class about the documentary, or you're just as part of the uh, class, you're doing a project about the Last Dance. Not to the project about what, what I decided to do. It's fun because both myself and my colleague, Melissa Isaacson, who covered the Bulls for the Chicago Tribune in the early 90s. So we're both in the documentary and we were both around those 90s Bulls teams. And so, you know, we have unique insight. And so I think it's pretty cool for our students that they can have access to people who um, are connected to this major cultural moment, <laughs> what this has turned into. Um, and so we just decided, you know what, we're, we're going to do like a Zoom chat. We're not going to have our faces. We're just going to use the chat function of Zoom. And we're going to share some additional thoughts, maybe some things that we don't want out there publicly in Twitter. You know, I'm tweeting during these, during the live airings, um, but I'm also doing stuff in our chat. And, and Melissa Isaacson is joining me as well. And they can ask questions if they have specific questions, you know, because they're younger than you. So that, I mean, I, I think what are they they're, they're, almost, they're almost too blown away by this, they don't have a lot of questions. So I kind of have to prompt them, like, what do you guys think? And they, they just, you know, they can't believe Rodman was so far-fetched. They can't believe how physical the games with the Pistons were. 
Um, you know, they, they can't believe Jordan's identity. So like all of it just seems unbelievable to them. Mm. That, that, that's what's fascinating to me is that they're like, God, did this really exist? I mean, I tell them like, if you think this is unbelievable, you should watch the U, the 30 for 30 on oh the U and God. just all the stuff that team got away, you know, because it's just such a different world. You know, the, the, the fouls that were, were just considered common fouls in the playoffs, right, which would be like a three-game suspension if they happened today. Um, I think that that's what's done. And being able to see that and delve into that a little bit more and hear it explained and, um, you know, hearing Jordan's perspective and what made him. And we'll see that even more in Episode 7. So that's outside. In class, we're going to try to have uh, Will Purdue supposed to join us. Remember those early Oh, hey. Teams? Yeah. Um, who was traded for? They didn't get into that in the documentary. Will Purdue was traded for Rodman. Yes, um, and know, the I, fact I, that they that he called him uh, Will Vanderbilt. Which, yeah, man. <laughs> like Mike, um, Michael's got a Michael's got a mean streak, man. He's got a oh, he yeah. nicked. I mean the Jerry Krause stuff. Like again, humanizing Michael Jordan in ways that you don't get to see is him just being a jokester around these guys. Absolutely. Here's it. It's interesting. His stats. Howard Beck just tweeted about how. Michael Jordan's usage rates, like his highest usage rate, which was a 98, actually, believe it or not. Actually, no, not that, but the rate 41st all time. <laughs> actually, no, his highest was 34.7 and 93. That would be 28. So, you know, this guy who, hard to think of more usage than Michael, but, you know, he really wasn't a high usage guy. Well, maybe that's because of Phil Jackson. Maybe if Doug Collins was still coaching him, he'd be the, the number one usage guy. Yeah, yeah. These are these are the usage rates in the uh, in the Phil era, um, the the championship seasons in the Phil era. So it's probably higher, probably is higher in the Doug Collins, um, the Doug Collins times. Just thought you might be interested in, in that stat. Look at you, giving me the stat. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm trying to you know the analytics. You have to, you have to consider the environment, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm looking yeah. around at this at the surroundings, and I'm thinking, okay, what's something that would be appropriate for this? Well, Luca, Russ, and James Harden, I'm sure, have way blown out of the water um, in, in usage rate. Hey, I, I know I've held you over time here. Yeah, um, I got to get to the grocery store during my pickup window. Speaking of got pandemic, to. Uh, but uh, uh, brief answer to your questions. I mean, just one change is just, I mean, obviously, we're doing everything online through Zoom. And um, one of the motives I'm trying to tell them is that, you know, guess what? The playing field has been leveled right now because... No one else can get any closer to these guys than you can right now. So um, now more than ever, you, you can produce work that's, that looks similar to what everybody else is doing. So take advantage of that and really try to produce professional quality work. And it will approximate what the pros are doing more so than in any other time. That's right. Yeah. And, and now, you know, for someone who relies so much on the numbers, you know, everyone else is now like without the access of the games and writing off the game stories, it becomes more level for me too, is now because yeah. people are digging into the numbers and historic the numbers. Yeah. yeah. And I have Jay Adande schooling me about usage. <laughs> usage rates. Who, Come who, on. who would have thought? Who would I have love thought? it. You stay safe. You enjoy the grocery run. I've, I've been doing the curbside stuff for, for a bit and it's still even awkward then is, is, is doing the curbside pickup here in Charlotte. And uh, I, well, cause you eye them, you're like, you know, you're going to, the first time they did it, like the person took my credit card and started. And so like the second time, like, no, I'm going to turn like, I don't want you to touch my credit card. Yeah. And then they, they, they offer the pen for you to sign a credit card receipt. And I said, you know what? You sign for me. You know, I don't want to exchange pens. Yes. I just said, you can sign, you know, I'm not going to sue you and say like, this is fraudulent, but like you sign, I don't want to, 
you know, thank you for bringing my groceries out to me. I just want to have as little, you know, physical interaction with you as possible. <laughs> so we, we got pizza on Friday night. My wife is sitting shotgun in the car and I'm going to be the one handling the credit card and the, uh, and doing like, you know, the pickup of the, of the pizza. So my wife is in the shock, the shotgun seat, passenger seat, and I'm driving. We pull up and the lady comes out with the pizza with a mask on and gloves. And she sees me putting on my mask in the, in the driver's seat. And she walks over to my wife's side of the car <laughs> and hands the, the bill to her. And at, my wife looks at me like, what am I supposed to do here? And she grabs the pocket, the, the receipt and signs. And she's just like, ah, like uh, the whole, our I, whole. I just, why not leave the window rolled up? I don't know. She, it, it was a Larry David <laughs> moment. It was a classic <laughs> curb your enthusiasm moment where she lowered her window because she didn't want to offend her. Be like, no, go over to my husband. He's got the mask. And then it, it was a whole thing. And afterwards, she's just like, I, I mean, even if we're being careful, it's so easy to just in the moment, uh, just it, it just gets screwed up. So we pureled like also, crazy after that. We, we definitely need a curb season off this because this, this is just so made for Larry because he has every excuse now to just be rude. Like, yeah, Larry David would have rolled up the window in the person's face and told them to go around to your side. And, and uh, you know, like, I'm just trying to imagine the looks Larry David would be giving. If somebody offers their hand, you know, for a handshake. Just can you imagine the look Larry David would give that person uh, oh, in, the, in the coronavirus era. Like we need, we need an emergency season of, of Kirby. I mean, there's a whole episode about how uh, he didn't use the tongs at the buffet line. <laughs> and I, like, that's a classic COVID episode is just whether we knew it or not. Like that's, that's the thing that he was dealing with back then. He was already a germaphobe about this stuff. So, all right, buddy. Well, thank you so much for going down uh, memory lane with me and uh, best of luck with, with the class. And I can't wait to see, the usage rate go up for Jay Adande on The Last Dance. Episode eight, high usage rate for the kids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks buddy. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Haber Show podcast. I want to give a big shout out to Jay Adande for joining me. Hope he stays warm up there in Chicago. He is the best. Appreciate him for coming on, sharing those stories about Michael and Dennis and Kobe and Isaiah and all that. Um, if you haven't listened yet to the Chris Mullen interview from last week, talking about the 92 Dream Team and just the crazy Zoom call that he was on with... Um, man, the list is Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, um, Jim Brown, Marcus Allen, Ozzy Smith, Cedric the Entertainer. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So uh, go check that out um, and go subscribe, rate, and review if you can. And go tell your friends, your enemies, your Isaiah Thomases in your life. Uh, go tell them to go download and subscribe as well to The Haber Show. Until next time, The Haber Show. <laughs>